back to the Value Driven Investor Podcast, where we forge value-driven investors on a mission to live life on their terms. No matter where you have come from or where you are going, becoming a value-driven investor is in all our best interests because becoming financially free allows us to focus on what matters most, fulfilling our purpose. Our community of value-driven investors is committed to showing you the way. With the support of this community, you are sure to reach your goals. For all of us in the value-driven investor community, there is no greater gift than the gift of giving because together, anything is possible. All right, today we are back on the Value Driven Investor Podcast and we are talking about short-term rentals, but we're not just talking about short-term rentals. We're talking about how do you make an extra 30K on your short-term rental? That's $30,000 in net profit. That means you're gonna put that in your bank account and for some people, that might even supplement their income for the year. Okay, so this is a big episode. And I'm excited because we have a special guest, Ricky Grand. Ricky Grand, thanks for coming on, buddy. And no problem, man. Thanks for having me. And obviously, our famed Bob yeah, Grand. He's back. Keep going on these episodes, but I'm back. Yeah. Uh, Grando, you know, it's awesome, though, because uh, you, we've released the other episodes on short-term rentals, vacation rentals, Airbnbs, whatever anybody yeah. wants to call it. And we're getting a great response. I think this is definitely like you and I thought. This is definitely yeah. a hot button. And today, I feel like this episode could be another fantastic episode because everybody's asking themselves, okay, okay, you guys tell me that I should do this. Everybody's talking about it. But how do I really make money doing this? And how much money can I really make? And in one of the past episodes, you had said, I make a really good living off of these properties. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing more of them. But $30,000, I mean, you guys, $30,000 yeah. is not chump change. You can't, you can't just like be like, oh, well, that's not a big deal, right? I think it's pretty good money. I mean, 2,500 bucks a month, how many properties do you need to do that, you know? If you're getting 200 bucks a property and then mortgages with all of them and the stress with all that's of them. That's a lot so. of single family properties yeah. as regular yearly rentals. I mean, that's a lot of good cash yeah. flow. So that's what we're going to go into today. And we talked about a specific property, which we're going to call the university... Bungalow. Bungalows. Okay. We're calling it the university. We love bungalow houses, dude. Bungalow yep. houses so down that, in the university. We area. actually, in our video on our YouTube, we went through the video and we actually yeah. showed you that property uh, in the, I believe it was the last episode that we just aired. And so we're going to use that episode as, or that property as a point of reference in this episode when we're talking about how do we get to 30K in income. Right on a vacation property or short-term rental. So Bob, why don't you get us started on breaking this down? Now, what I want you guys to know is that we're gonna go over a couple different things. Now we're hoping to hit all these main topics, but these are the main topics that we're hoping to hit because we feel like it's gonna sum up how do you make $30,000 on your short-term rental. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> there's a lot more questions that are gonna go into this and there's a lot more that goes into this than what we're gonna hit today in this short podcast. 
But you know what? What we're going to kick off with is we're going to talk about financing on the short-term rental. How do you finance a short-term rental? We're going to talk about the size of the property. Like, does the size of the property actually matter when it comes to the bottom line net income? We're going to talk about the gross income. And what does the gross income mean? It means how can we squeeze as much income out of these properties and what are the different ways that we do it? We're going to talk about net income. What does net income mean? It means, well, okay, all of a sudden now I'm making all this money, call it $70,000 a year in gross income, but I have all these expenses. What are all these expenses? Which, what expenses do I have to, to, what are obvious expenses? And then what are the expenses that are like, well, I, I didn't even know that that would be an expense because there's plenty of that in vacation rentals. We're gonna talk about income goals. If I invest $100,000 into buying a property, I turn it into a short-term rental, what should I expect to get after year one, two, three, four, and five? Like, what should I, what, what should my plan be? Cause you know, we're big believers in designing your life. Well, you have to design a plan around a short-term rental. And then finally, I'm hoping we can get to it, but we surely are not tax advisors but we can give you a little bit of information on the implications and the impact taxes will have on your bottom line. So Grando, take it from here, buddy. And uh, I'm excited for this episode. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I brought Ricky on for this one because I'm not the numbers magician like he is. He really understands the numbers the right way. He has a spreadsheet that he breaks it all down with. Um, And, you know, uh, just in the last like year, it just really hit me like I need to do more of these short-term rentals. Uh, a, because they're great in our market. B, because they generate really good income when you get going. So we're in progress of getting you know, another two, Ricky and I, up and running, which will actually be three total units. Uh, and then uh, my wife and I, Shelly, are in the progress of uh, buying another one to do the same thing. So and we've had a couple before that we've sold, you know, like houses, primary residence that we sold. But today we're just going to focus on the university bungalow because that's the one that's just been consistent, tried and true. And it's the one that we've really thought about a lot. Like, how do you optimize it? How do you squeeze the most out of it? And how did we do it? You know, so that's that's the number one thing that I think that we'll focus on. And uh, we'll kick it with Ricky here and we'll start talking about and let him ask me some questions, I think. And we can start piecing this thing together um, and how we do it. And just to recap real quick, University of Bungalow, I bought it in 2017. I did a studs up remodel on it, completely renovated it, got a really good purchase on it at that time. Um, I, I did, I think, like just a conventional mortgage, you know, to buy it. Um, since then, I've refinanced it because rates were super low and I got a, a two, 275 rate on it not too long ago. So so that one was a conventional mortgage that we purchased and just put our cash into to make it look awesome. Well, let's start off with that because we wanted to talk about financing. So did you yeah. buy that as a personal residence? Did you buy that as a second home or is that like an investment property like number yeah. two and three or four? I actually bought it to move into um, back in 2017. So I was moving from another town into Eugene. I just needed a place I could get and it was I wanted something close and convenient. My brother was right around the corner, so it worked you out really great. You want to be close to me. Yeah, I want to be close to Ricky. So, But I mean, <laughs> so like, from a banker cool perspective, like is a banker yeah. looking at this and saying, okay, I'm going to finance this like this is a personal yeah. residence, personal or like residence. a second home, or mm-hmm. like an investment property? Yeah, personal residence. And, and, it, and that's a good strategy, too, is hopping from your primary residence and then saying you want to rent that one out, you know, and then Airbnb it out later and then jumping into your next one and trying to get as many as you possibly could under conventional standards. Because if you put money into them, you clean them up, you could get in with 5% down, clean it up and refinance it down the road and have build in that, you know, that equity window to have 20%, which is a great. Okay. So let's, I I want to ask about this because if I'm a banker and I'm like, okay, so you own this house and now you're going to rent this house out, which you bought Mm -hmm. as a personal residence. And we're just going to leave your financing that way there. But then now you're going to go buy a new house 
and yeah. you want me to finance it as your personal residence and then you're going to rent yeah. that out and this is going to be your second house but it's going to be so can you just keep jumping like that and yeah. they'll always be giving you well you can i think you can get a couple I think you can get a couple like that. You're not going to get 10, you know, but, uh, you know, the one that, uh, that we're working on right now. Um, so the Harris house, you know, I did that. Right. Then we, we moved to our spyglass house, which we since and sold that we Airbnb out while we lived there. Um, and now we're back at the Harris house, uh, kind of, cause it's Airbnb out all the time. So I live in a trailer most of the time, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> and I'm working on a house that I'm going to be staying in longer. <laughs> Right sure, down the street. Bob. <laughs> the one that we're actually buying, we did that because we we're like, hey, you know, here's we're in the Harris house. You know, we have it. You know, we want to re-rent it back out. You know, just focus on it being a rental. And boom, we're going to go buy this other one, and we're going to call that our primary residence. So it's it's all about the time and the window that you're looking at and what you're doing at that time. Okay. If your primary residence is your primary residence and you want to rent it out, they're okay with that, right? But your debt to income, you know, ratios have to work in order for you to do that. So yeah. if you find the next one, you're like, this will be my primary. I'll turn this one into a rental. That's a very plausible thing for, you know, anybody that's a banker or a mortgage lender to understand. Well, and at so the end I of the day, Bob, get, like if we're yeah. sitting here trying to make this happen, that is the best way you can finance something like this, right? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other one that we're buying, um, the rate's 299 You know, it's like. Hopefully it closes. It was a short sale. So like, hopefully it'll close. It's kind of, you know, we're kind of wondering if it'll close, but a 299 rate, if we get that, you know, it's a, another $440,000 property. That's a great mortgage, you know, Okay. Now you got a couple more that you're building out. So I, I, Mm -hmm. this financing thing, I think is very important for people to understand because most people do not understand financing at all. Are you going to be able to do the same time of financing with these other properties that you're building out or, okay. So how are you financing these new projects that you're going to build out and you're going to have as, short-term rentals so ricky and i like uh say the two projects that we're buying we we use private money or hard money for those 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 acquisitions on those things and specifically he's kind of a hybrid quasi hard money lender um that we use uh, the rates are anywhere from 10 to 11 percent you know that you you on the initial purchase so we do that and then we put our own cash into it and then we take it and we'll refinance it out as an investment property but we're building that 25 percent equity window into the property that we need in order to get it refined refinanced out including get most most of our cash into it out, you know, so that's kind of like that. Well, it's kind of like method. that Burr method, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. It's like a Burr method, but you're using it for an Airbnb and it works for anything. It's just your end goal. Just, you just have to decide what it is. We, we look at everything, you know, it could be a single family rental that we want to just make a single family rental and do the exact same strategy. But, you know, in certain locations, the profits can be really huge in Airbnb. So it's like, what is the right, you know, what is the right, thing for this property and you're just clicking through the gears, you know, trying to figure it out. And it's like, it just so happens, you know, our downtown property, it'd be a great single family rental for sure, but it would be a phenomenal short-term rental, you know, like two to three times what, you know, you could possibly get from a regular rental. Okay, Bob. So let's clear this up now. All right. So you're going to go out and you initially acquire this property using hard money. You Mm -hmm. have a 10% rate. You have to put some money down, obviously. You're going to fix it up. Now it's worth more money because you got a new appraisal. Now you go refi it. Now when you refi it, are you refining it back with the hard money lender or are you going to a conventional bank or who are you refining that thing with? That's a good question. We actually... This was a struggle that we had over the last year and a half for my brother and I. It was really hard for us to acquire and hold properties because we couldn't, we didn't find the right lenders. So that's another great list that we can provide to people is uh, off market lenders that don't go with the conventional standards, you know, of lending. And we've got a handful of them. Every time we see them now, we just 
put them down and we hold them and we have them. And right now, you know, we have one that we're really working with that we've got, uh, that we just refinanced one property through, which went really smoothly. Don't you think Ricky? Went oh yeah, smooth. Real yeah. Yeah. It went smooth with them. And so that, that's probably the biggest thing. And what these type of investment lenders do is they understand that there's investors out there that can't use the conventional world. And really quickly, if you live in an area with high price houses, you know, your debt to income ratios get crushed really quick when you got a couple of properties. So you end up having to figure out that route very quickly. And that's just something that we both focused on. We're like, we got to figure this out. We got to be holding more than we're selling, you know, cause we're just selling, selling, selling. And it's like, we're making cash, we're paying taxes, but we want to hold, you know, we're investors for the long term. So this That's is just awesome, part of our Bob. strategy. Okay. So that really so. gives me a good feeling of how you're pulling this off from a finance perspective, because everybody, number yeah. one thing you have to figure out is the money. You have to figure out how huh. you're going to finance these things, on multiple how you're going to hold on to them, how you're going to leverage yeah. them. Because the leverage in real estate is the value of real estate. Yeah, everybody thinks yeah. the asset's great, and it is great. You mm -hmm. get appreciation, you get cash flow, but the yeah. beauty of it is the leverage that you get. You get leverage because a bank will give you 80% of the value of the mm -hmm. property. They'll loan it to you, so you only have to come yeah. up with 20% of that. The leverages is all the tax leverages and the tax mm -hmm. benefits you're getting from these properties. So the leverage you get in the financing, you have to understand the financing. So let's move yes. on. Let's go to the university okay. bungalow here and let's start breaking that property down. I just wanted you guys to get really clear on the financing. It's very important. All right, guys. It's the most important part, and that which is what Ricky focused on all the time. So, yeah, yeah. All right, let's break down the university bungalow, Ricky. Maybe ask some questions. Break out your spreadsheet. We can walk it backwards. I can tell you everything. I can tell you off the top of my head. Of course, these numbers are my ballpark figures. I haven't looked at our exact numbers, but I'm pretty close on them, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, we can ballpark so, some of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and and Tim, I, on this, I mean, because we're always looking for value-add property, so it really depends on, you know, what's the route that someone's taking. When when people are new I'm, and they want my advice, I say, hey, find one that you can buy as a primary and then uh, turn it into an Airbnb, right? Something that's a little more turnkey, yeah. It's not a gut job. It's not an update like we do. So I've you know changed my spreadsheet a little bit just to kind of fit that mold that you know alternates that's, between colors. That's a great thing right there because that's a very good way for people to get started. And that's exactly the way that we're having we're helping our own real estate agent and our brokerage get started. She wants to do exactly that, and that's what we're helping her do. So yeah, it's, and this it's, is exactly what we're talking about, which is yeah, cool. if you want to if you want to get into it, it's the best way to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just to you know, I'll just walk through some questions with Robert, and um, and then I'll it'll plug the numbers in, and then we can talk about what the numbers, you know, what they come I hope out they come out right. right? <laughs> we made a big promise. <laughs> made a big but, promise. Uh, so, but yeah, I think we got. But uh, so Robert, what's uh, what's what's your annual insurance on the property? Uh, annual insurance on that property is seven hundred and fifty dollars. Ballpark, it's between seven eight hundred, but I think it's I think the last thing I saw was seven fifty. Okay, and what about your property taxes? Property taxes are thirty six hundred. That's one of the reasons why we love university bungalows. Is property taxes don't go up on the sale of uh, properties in Oregon; they maintain off their original. That's assessment. awesome. Only three percent per year, which is makes them awesome. Oh, yeah, Minnesota doesn't do that. Yeah, I know. Most <laughs> <places don't. laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're going to try to overturn it soon. Oh, go uh, ahead, Ricky. Sorry. Average cost per night. Um, uh, that actually, uh, on that property, it goes anywhere between, you know, so 250 to 400 right now. So I would say your probably average is probably 325. Okay. We'll just use that across the board. And, you know, I have three scenarios here so people can play with it, you know, and, and make some of their own assumptions. And then over yeah. here, which I'll go over later, but uh, 
this is it's called a sensitivity analysis and it'll show you changes you know depending on your assumptions so you don't have to keep making changes and it'll kind of show you what it does so um you know looking here i have it at built at 60 70 and 80 percent i think that's pretty okay. fair yeah, yeah i think we're probably about 70 percent you know and we're, yeah. we're holding it back right now because we're trying to get nights there so we can finish the the property yeah, so, i have lifted up there kincaid yeah so looking at it right away you know you're looking at it you know, close to $82,000 a year of revenue, you know, mm-hmm. and that's um, just, you know, your rent um, times the number of days in the month. And we just use an average of 30, you know, you lose a couple days, um, you know, cause you have a 365 day year, but, and then multiplied by the 70% uh, uh, occupancy rate. So you can see it here. And then, uh, so now, I have it built. So, you know, once you plug in your insurance and taxes, it, it breaks it down. But um, Robert, how much do you pay for internet? It's, it's actually 70. 70 yeah, for internet. On that one. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. And then what are you, your utilities? Utilities, each? I think on average, are a little bit higher than that. Probably about, for the electric, it's been high lately. So I think probably about 225, two, maybe 250. I'd put 250. Okay, so what we'll do, since we're talking uh, 60, 70, and 80%, we're going to do it this yeah. way, right? More people, more... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of a growing scale. That's mm-hmm. a really good call. Garbage and landscape? Garbage, uh, yeah, 70, I think it's 60 bucks a month for garbage. We, we get the huge bins, you know, so people don't overflow garbage. So get yeah. Airbnb tip, get the biggest garbage can you can get. Yeah. Um, yeah, landscaping, 120 a month. Okay, so for anybody on the podcast, I just want you to know you should go to our YouTube channel, Value Driven Investor YouTube channel. We will have, like, you can actually see Ricky go through the spreadsheet here. So you, I don't want yeah. you to miss out on that because I think that's the biggest value prop right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's if really you are good just listening it. to this right now, you should be uh, on our YouTube channel and you should check out this spreadsheet that Ricky yeah. put together. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. We, I actually just refinanced it so we could run the refinance scenario. Yeah, so, that's what I'm getting yeah. to next. Yeah, is um, what did what did the uh, appraisal come in at? Came in at uh, I think it was like five ninety nine. Five ninety nine. Yeah. Okay, and then now, uh, what is your? Uh, well, you're loan. not making a purchase, so what yeah, is your loan well, amount? The loan amount is uh two seventy five, I believe. That's what we where we landed at. So, and I. And I can tell you how much I have. I probably have just over a hundred thousand into the property. I don't know if there's a spot for that. I, I, do, I don't because I changed this one because that's kind of our model is, is doing the oh, okay. foundation one. So now that's uh, good because this is perfect one, for somebody. Yeah. If they want that one, I can certainly put it back in, but that that's definitely, you know, it's a little more advanced for people and uh, I'm happy to go over it with them or, you know, we yeah. could do another quick uh, video that it shows cool. that. Um, what's your whole series of videos? What's that? What's uh, the interest in- rates? Two seven five. Um, okay, so eleven twenty two roughly is your payment for just the mortgage, yeah, not taxes. Just the mortgage, insurance. right? Okay. Um, so, um, as you can see, you know we're we're going to go off scenario two seventy percent. Uh, the net operating income for this property right now is a little under $6,000 a month, which, you know, I want people to, you know, I want to be very clear. Like that's, that's a great number, but there are other expenses that come into this as well. So it's not like, you know, you you can retire. Um, but, um, but you, 
immediately you see the difference between if he rented that thing out for you know twenty five hundred dollars a month, which is probably right. pretty reasonable for that house. Yeah. Um, what it would uh, what it would look like, um, you know, the the, the stark differences and how much income you can generate. But if there's also more risk to it, right? I mean, right. Uh, you know, if something happens and the the travel market, you know, the, uh, the travel industry dies down, then you know, Robert could could see that uh, negatively impact his rental. So right. it's just things to be thinking about. But, you know, so here we have $6,000 a month of income and then, you know, his mortgage payments and another 1100. Um, so, you know, roughly he's getting, you know, $4,900 a month, or I guess up here yeah. you can see I have 40, 4840 is his, is his current mm -hmm. cash flow, but that doesn't take into account the, the repairs, stuff like that, that, mm -hmm. Um, is going to vary. And so that's not something I have included in this, but, you yeah. know, I guess that's where, you know, I, the question I ask Robert is, is, you know, ballpark, how much are you spending on upkeep, um, repairs, yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, with an Airbnb, you know, so that's why you see the number it's big, but it's very true. There's time that goes into it, right? Cause it's an active investment. You're actively investing. So you have to put some sort of value on your time. That's why we say, you know, 30 to 40 K net extra per year. Um, cause you're spending some time, but I would say that, you know, supplies and all that stuff, you know, per year, you could probably put about $6,000. So about 500 bucks a month, you know, would probably be very legitimate mm -hmm. and up, upkeep and maintenance, you know, like, that's, that's one of the harder things. That's why it's really good to go studs up, right, you know, on something. Because then if you go studs back and completely remodel something, you get that opportunity to get kind of deferred. You don't have to do the maintenance for probably 10 to 12 years. But you do have wear and tear on your property that you have to deal with. So I would say, you know, on average, we have our guys out there, you know, once every couple of months working on some incidental things. So that's probably another 100 bucks a month, you know. So 12, you can just put $2,000 a year you know, in that, um, H that, that helps include like HVAC filters and all those things that you would break down with a property like that. And you know what you're thinking. So, so you know, it's getting probably, new bedding and all sorts of stuff when you need it, you know? Yeah. It's probably um, safe to assume. And then, I mean, obviously, cause you got to furnish this thing too. So you yeah. have, yeah. Um, you know, you got to replace couches, cushions, stuff like that, stuff that gets uh, incidentals. It, I would say it's, it's probably safe to assume, you know, $1,000 a month of, you know, on average, because this isn't mm -hmm. every month, maybe one month you have to replace a couch or something, yeah. you know, $1,000 a month on uh, on your incidentals. Yeah, that's probably, I mean, a very, yeah, I think that's probably a good number because then you could, you can break that down. You'd say that I'm going to, I have $12,000 a year in, in upkeep for this property which I think would make a lot of sense because yeah, you have to buy bedding sometimes you do have to furnish mm -hmm. it. Um, and that, that's, you know, as, as we dig deeper, that's like, this is a real basic spreadsheet for people to get a good grasp. Like the other spreadsheets that we can, you know, develop and have, you know, can really break down those numbers and we can really get finite with those things because each property, I mean, when you look at a bedroom, you can, you can go, Hey, this is the number I need for each of these things. Um, for me, you know, that's why I said at about a, you know, a hundred to a hundred or probably a hundred and a quarter into the property with it all furnished out and everything like that, you know? So, yeah. um, but yeah, I think that's safe to say a thousand bucks per month, you could 12,000 per year, you know, for property expenses. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty fair. And uh, and Tim, if people want this, I can I can make some edits to it so that it's a little more user friendly for them yeah. too. Well, and okay, uh, let's like when you say we're trying to put together a ballpark number for all for the expenses. Now, 
Yeah. Is there something that doesn't isn't included in the expenses? Like like let's list off what does this ballpark number, this round number include yeah. in its expenses? Because it, what it's yeah. it's sounding like is like you're kind of assuming okay, I had to spend, you know, $15,000 on furniture to get the house furnished and I'm basically going to just allocate that over the life of the property, quote unquote. So I'm going to break it down to a monthly expense. But there's also, I mean, like, (laughs) this is what you have to think about too, is that there's also a tax gain on that because you can write that off. And so Mm -hmm. that is, that actually increases your income. So you guys, that's why this is so complicated. There's no way you can come up with a perfect spreadsheet to, to break this thing all down and factor in like taxes and write-offs and all that into your net net. Um, so I just want you to know that this won't be a perfect number. If you go yeah. into short-term rentals and you're doing, I mean, look at Ricky's spreadsheet. It's, it's ridiculous. Like it's factored in so many different things, <laughs> yeah. but it's still, it's there's no perfect. spreadsheet that Ricky can put together. That's going to nail it right on the head because there's so many different variable costs that come in and out of managing a short-term rental. Is that fair to say, guys? Oh, yeah, that, that's that's exactly right, man. And yeah. when you look at those numbers and, and just trying to sum that up for you, um, you know, that 12,000 a year, you should be you should be banking something like that, right? Because you never know, like, if a furnace goes out, just like a regular rental property, you know? So if you're planning, like, hey, if I can make this amount of money, I should bank, you know, 1,000, 1,500 bucks a month to build a reserve account out to weather a storm, you know, just like Ricky said, if, if like when COVID hit, boom, Airbnbs took a chop, right? They came back really quick, you know, and, and we end up doing really well, but we were like, oh, what's going to happen? You know, I was like, ooh, this might have not have been a great program. It turned out to be just fine, you know, which I was like, this is awesome. It's going good. But that's always something you should plan for and have a reserve account built. So that number, that's why I was like, you know, it's actually really smart to say about a thousand bucks a month. It might be a lot less than that. You know, I don't know like how many times you have to replace the sheets, the, you know, the, the, the cups, you know, the, the, the utensils that go missing, something gets broken that you don't realize and you don't get reimbursed for and you just got to buy it, you know? So having that slush fund set aside when you're focusing on it is such a smart thing to do, you know, especially for the first couple of years. Yeah. And Tim, I want to, I want to you know, be clear here. I think that you're going to have, you know, on average with this property, uh, $12,000 a year of, of ongoing expenses. So I'm not, I'm skipping the step of the rehab because that's a whole nother video. Yeah. Yeah. That's way more. Uh, So this is in my mind, ongoing expenses that people are going to have, you know, and, and we try to be conservative with numbers. I want people to know, you know, Hey, like, you want to, you really want to be conservative and, and look at kind of what's worst case scenario type of situations, you know, and to, and I know this, you know, I've added some stuff to kind of, you know, fit what we're talking about here. Um, but, you know, I think the important part to also remember is you need a CPA. Um, you need a good accountant to help make sure that you're getting everything done correctly um, because you have depreciation yeah. that you get and that's a non-cash expense. Um, and then you have um, taxes. And, and while this is an investment property, you get long-term capital gains if you sell it. Um, and then uh, ordinary income tax on, uh, um, on, the, on the profit that you generate annually or you know, monthly um, versus if you flip it, then you just always pay, pay ordinary income tax. Um, so, you know, there's ways to get creative to, to reduce that tax burden too. So, you know, one thing I really want to point out here is that, okay, you know, we're just assuming an 80, 20 rule for your, 
your um, depreciation. And what that means is that 80% of the property is considered um, depreciable. 20% is considered land of that value. This is based on um, the price you paid when you put it into service. So I, I, uh, for this sake, I just left it at the loan amount for simple math right now. Um, so you have a taxable income of $38,000 on this thing. Uh, you know, when all said and done. So now you get down to, to the, uh, you know, how much you're going to end up paying in taxes or income after taxes, because you're going to end up paying 70% of your, uh, or I mean, 30% of your and taxes ballpark. Everybody's tax rates also different. So you got to look at what your effective tax rate is. And that's where your CPA comes in. So uh, income after Robert pays taxes is essentially going to be $26,000 on this at least from like a federal standpoint, but you do get to add back the depreciation. So this is a non-cash expense. So that's where you're going to end up. If you add it back, you end up with, you know, for Robert's situation, $34,000 a year in, uh, in his profit. Oh, there you go. That's better than the 30 that we were oh. hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, uh, I think that hit the number that we were talking about, right? Yeah. You, you yeah. got it. You got it yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, you guys, let's yeah, let's go back here though, because I I think we have I mean the numbers obviously you got to be watching this on uh, our YouTube channel so you can see Ricky break down these numbers and he, and he completes the spreadsheet for you. Um, but I think let's let's get to the nuts and bolts for our our podcast listeners. Like Bob, do you feel like this property from a size perspective maximizes your return, or do you feel like size doesn't really matter as long as you you know the numbers? Like size, again, like buying yeah. a one bedroom condo versus a two bedroom house versus a a four bedroom house, and I believe what is this a is this a three bedroom house? Three bedroom, two bath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, size, I think you know, I think bedrooms and bathrooms matter more than square footage. You know, so, and when you look at that, you know, you could have a smaller house with four bedrooms and you get more, a higher amount per night. Right. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest factor, but it's always capacity. What's, what's capacity in your area? Can your area, is it a resort area? Can it handle, you know, a 4,000 square foot house? Like we Bend, Oregon, for example, is a great location where people go to vacation and you can do really big vacation rentals over there. You can do a, you know, a 3,500 square foot home and it can house, you know, 12 to 13 people. Your cost per night is going to be, you know, a thousand to 1500. So you, you could get a really huge gross and then, you know, out of that and then potentially get some really good revenue. You know, when you, when you look at it that way, it comes with more expenses and everything just like that, you know, but, uh, you know, our previous house that we had, our uh, spyglass house that we had as an Airbnb that we were kind of quasi living there, you know, that thing would, you know, it would pull seven fifty to $1,200 per night because it was in a good location. People come to town. It's a three, it was a four bedroom, three bath house with a downstairs, another space that you could, you know, stay in too. And so it just generated good money like that. So you can get more money, but I wouldn't want to say like, go buy the biggest Airbnb that you possibly can and go huge. I'd say probably start small, test it, figure it all out, and then proceed up the line as you can. And having one big one might be really cool to have. And it might be a smart thing to do uh, as well as a few smaller ones, you know? So this leads me to another question, Bob, because you had your spyglass house and then obviously you have this university bungalow. One of the questions that came to my mind is, is it more important to get like a thousand dollars a night or to get $400 for three or four or five nights? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I mean, you can look at it both ways. Do you want your occupancy to be 100%? And this is what I see in Hawaii all the time. They're like, oh, we can't even stay in our place. Our occupancy is 95 to 100%. Well, the night's so cheap that they're making the same amount as somebody that's you know charging the right price and they're at a 50% occupancy, right? So it's like, there's like two things to balance right there when you're kind of going back and forth, if that kind of makes sense, you got to kind of think about it that way. You want to drive your nightly cost up, you know, um, to start seeing, you know, bookings fall off. And then you might want to decrease it back down. And then you kind of know where you're at for like what you can really handle for that price. And there's websites that'll help you tell you this, but nothing beats just test, right? Like testing your area because your area is specific. Exactly. So we went up, you know, and we would try, you know, I think on the, the university bungalow, we went up to like 450 a night and we're like, was anybody going to book it here? It's like, no, we're not getting any bookings. And you just start trickling it back down. You're like, okay, what's, you know, what's 400 do? Oh, we're getting bookings, but we're, we don't have a full month. And we wanted to stay there right now because we're building something else. So we're like, okay, that's a good, if people pay us 400 per night, we would totally move out of that for that, you know? So that's kind of one of those things. But if you're just saying, I'm only doing as an Airbnb, you would do that same method just to try to keep your bookings. And then you'd think about other ways to optimize. You know, there's more than Airbnb, right? There's VRBO. There's hundreds of booking sites out there. So, so at the end of the day though, Bob, optimization. Like- Yes, you always want to maximize your dollar. But yes. if somebody said, if you had the option of uh, somebody comes in and says, okay, hey, I'm going to take your property, like you're advertising it at $500. And, yeah. you know, you got me, I'm the negotiator. I'm coming in, I'm saying, hey, Bob, you know what? I know you're advertising this at $500 a night. I am, and, and that's per night. I'm going to rent this for a full week, but I want to do it at $375. But then the next guy comes and says, yeah, Bob, I'm only going to rent this for two nights but I'll pay you seven fifty. Yeah. Like now, and again, you're not living in the property. This is a right. this is a this is an asset that you want right. to get the maximum amount of dollars that Ricky just went through, uh, right. and you want to increase your your bottom line net. Are you going to take the guy that's going to pay a little bit less but give you more nights, or are you going to take the guy that's going to pay a little bit more but isn't going to be there as often? Is like as the, long. The, the number's the same, right? So you obviously want the highest amount with the least amount of nights. That, I mean, is the concrete answer. I mean, that's like the Hawaii approach that you see when people are charging 200 bucks a night and they're booked at 100%. Wear and tear goes up dramatically. That's basically having a renter in the property, but with a lot more turnover and you got a lot more cleanings and a lot more stuff to do with. So that's why you want to go higher end. It's a really good point you're making. That's why we've went higher end, you know, to get a higher price and less nights because we can make the same amount of money as the guy that's trying to go really cheap and have just a flop shop Airbnb or VRBO just to get people in it, you know? So I'd rather have less wear and tear on my property, less things missing, less things broken, you know, stuff like that and less nights booked, but at a higher price. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, just to add to it, Tim, I think it's about, you know, maximizing the property. Right. And that's, that Mm -hmm. looks different ways at different times. And, you know, and, and I, everybody's always like, how do I maximize revenue? How do I get more money? How do I get more money? Sometimes you right. get more money by reducing your expenses. I mean, that's just as important. Yeah, that's a great right? So managing that, you know, buying the right furniture that's going to last, maybe it's a little more expensive, but maybe it lasts for a year longer, not buying it as often. You know, you're putting yeah. nicer things in there. So maybe it's also giving you more money on, on, you can charge more for right? Like if I got Ikea furniture in that house versus, you know, wherever Shelly buys, you know, the nice yeah. stuff, you know, if yeah. I put that stuff in, well, there's a different ambiance in the house itself. Um, 
you know, so if you can reduce those costs too, I think that's, you know, an important component for people to look at. You know, that's why we like to rehab, right? Gut it, get it all fixed up. We know that the maintenance is going to be minimal on these things. Right. Um, I think another key point that you bring up here is that when you're calculating the Rubik's cube or the algorithm for uh, how to optimize, it is the turnover ratio. So if Mm -hmm. I can maximize how much I'm able to get per night and reduce the turnover, the number of nights I have to turn this thing over, I think that will keep your expenses down, keep your wear and tear down, Mm -hmm. but also increase your income. So I think is that Ricky, would you agree with that? Yeah, that's where the balancing comes in, right? Like Robert was talking about, you know, it's trial and error. There's no like formula. Oh, this is what you charge, right? It's let's try 450. Are we getting enough? Does it make sense, right? And and versus, okay, we charge 200. We're 100 percent full, but if we're 100 percent full, then there's a problem. You're not charging enough. Like you shouldn't yeah. be 100 percent. You know, it should never be 100% occupancy. I think the goal should be, you know, 75%. Where's that sweet spot where you can get that? Because at least from some of the experience that shows that that's where you're maximizing your revenue. And then you have to look at how do I now minimize the cost? So then I'm maximizing my profit. That Okay. So like, guys, that's did you catch point. that? Because that's he just really said, good. you don't want 100% occupancy because then you're probably not charging enough. And the magic number, you know, and again, this isn't a perfect formula, but Ricky's magic number is, you know, you want about a 75% occupancy rate. That means you're, you're charging close to the top, but you're not charging too little. And you're also reducing the amount of wear and tear on the property because of the turnover ratio. I think that's, that's huge. That's a huge tip that you're giving people. Now, I think part of this algorithm is seasons right i mean i'm in minnesota you guys are out in eugene i know i have more extreme weather than you probably have but seasonality has to play into the algorithm of both pricing and the turnover ratio correct yeah you know uh we're fortunate here in eugene that there's a lot of stuff going on year round you know so there's like basketball you know U of O basketball university of oregon football track mm-hmm. like all these different things so that's that's back in the episode that we talked about before, just knowing your area, maybe your area is the right one to invest in. Maybe it's not, you know, if you live out in the middle of nowhere, you know, might not be a good Airbnb. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, seasonality can play definitely into a factor. Like it probably does in like, um, you know, places like Hawaii and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They're probably way more booked during the winter months, less booked in August when it's, you know, a UV of 15 and 150 degrees on the island, you know? So there's definitely those seasonalities. That yeah, and that factors into price market. though, right? I so, mean, like you're going to yeah. have to be aware of it and say, okay, mm-hmm. I got to adjust if it's like in Minnesota. Oh, it's yeah. snowing out. It's not beautiful summer weather and I have a lake property. Well, yeah. I have to adjust that because yeah. there's probably going to be fewer people there. I mean, how big of an impact do you think that really makes in in creating a bottom line, you know, net profit? I mean, does seasonality, if you pick the wrong spot, you're screwed? I think it could like definitely dramatically affect things, right? If you have a place that only books over the summertime, you better have an amazing summertime rate to to grab that whole year. Cause you know, like if you're in whatever Canada and all of a sudden it becomes an ice storm for the next six, eight months, who's going to go there? If you're in Eugene, Oregon, the weather's way more, um, kind of you know, across the board. And there's a lot of things going on here, probably December and January, you know, we still book out those holiday things, but we book them for a really high price. And then there's games and stuff that happen during that time. It's a little bit slower during that time, but it kicks back up really fast, you know? So that's the thing to look at in your market, you know? 
Yeah, Ricky, I want to go a little. Oh, go ahead, Rick. If you got some oh, just destinations, right? Like things going on. Like we have a college town, um, and we, you know, we've been fortunate that we've had a lot of investment go on in it as well. So we have the track and field, uh, the brand new track. So there's a lot of events going on there. We actually, I mean, we have even Matthew Knights. So we have basketball, men's and women's, but we also they do um, concerts, um, comedy yeah. stuff there. You know, we have Austin Stadium for football. You know, so we have these different things that, that are attractions for our area um, that help with that. So I'm, yeah. you know, when looking for an Airbnb, what are the attractions that are around uh, the neighborhoods that would uh, benefit, you know, that Airbnb and, and get that short-term clientele? Because you're looking more for vacationers, right? You're not looking for college students. You know, you're not looking yeah. for long-term renters. You're looking for people right. who are looking for things to do. Yeah. yeah, know, know your audience. Do, coming to visit their kids, visiting military people, you know, all that yeah. tourism type stuff. Yeah, so. so if Minnesota has, you know, great winter stuff, then it's not hockey. a problem. You got hockey, dude? Like yeah. People, oh, yeah, we just, got hockey. Once yeah. it freezes, don't you guys just skate around on ice all the time? Oh, <laughs> yes. Snowmobiling, <laughs> snowshoeing. That's uh, got to be worse. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Destination. Man. Cold weather sports. Sounds attractive to me. <laughs> we, we, we like it where it's here. It's moderate and we go out to those places. We don't live in that type of well, Robert, I'm an extremist, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. Ricky, no I want to get into uh, the next topic, uh, net income, okay? Because I think yeah. this is another important cop topic. We kind of hit on it because you guys took that lump sum of $1,000 a month and like mm -hmm. put it away for – you know, expenses, but let's dig deeper into that number. Like, man, I know you guys have your, do your own management, but if I'm someone that isn't really advanced in real estate and I want to have a short-term rental and I don't really want to manage it, how will, you know, our management service fee is going to kill me. What about licensing fees? Like, do I have to license the property and pay a fee to have the license, uh, the property licensed as a short-term rental? Or what about like um, cleaning fees? Like, how do I manage those cleaning fees? All these little knicky-knack fees. May maybe there's some fees that I can't even think of on the net income side that have to be factored in. Can you kind of break down some of these fees and almost to a, into a list that people have to factor in and, and especially include some of the fees that, you know, most people wouldn't think of unless they actually ran these short-term rentals. So um, I'll let, I'll start, but I'll let Robert um, jump in as well. Um, so I, I, I made a couple of adjustments to the spreadsheet while you guys were talking so I could clean it up. <laughs> people who want to watch the video can now see it a little just a little bit better uh, with the inputs. Uh, so I, I moved the, the repairs and maintenance over here and made it a percentage, which is how we do, at least how I do the long-term rentals. So I figure it's a good way to at least set up this one. And then since you're talking property manager, yes, we manage our own. Mm -hmm. You can get property managers that will manage it for you. Um, I plugged in a 10% you know, fee because it's more active management. So mm -hmm. you're probably gonna pay a little bit more for that. Um, so that's now included, you know, so that you can see what the net operating income is and then go over here, see your cash flow again, 31, 34. Um, you can look at some of your metrics, but also the depreciation. So now your taxable income comes down to 29,600. So, you know, you're trading some of that income for, um, to be more passive. Whereas like Robert and I are very active in our investments. So people who want to be a little more hands off. You know, you got to trade some of that income for it. Um, and then your, your taxes again, and then your annualized after-tax cash flow, because you get that depreciation added back, ends up still being pretty close to what your taxable income was anyway in this scenario. That can change depending yeah. on the purchase prices and what your taxes end up being. 
And Ricky, but, uh, in your Airbnb assumptions block there, I don't see anything for cleaning. Like where do you factor oh, yeah. in cleaning, well, cleaning or like- Cleaning is charged to the client. So I leave it out too because you charge a cleaning fee on top of- well, Let's when talk about that. See, like I screwed yeah, that up. That's a really so good point. If you charge I'm it to the client, you... like what else gets charged to the client? Well, the cleaning fee is pretty much it. Their nightly rate, the property tax, you know, the, the room and lodging tax, if your city requires you to do that, all that stuff is billed in the, in, in the um, actual whole package price, what they, fee, what they pay. So I may be charging them 350 a night. It may actually cost them 400 a night by the time it's all said and done, by the time they paid cleaning and they paid the lodging tax and all that type of stuff. And a lot of cities are getting very aware of Airbnbs and they're starting to force the lodging tax. And Airbnb, VRBO, all the big ones, they withhold the lodging tax and they pay it directly to the cities on your behalf, all the, the really big providers do. I don't know about some of the smaller ones or if you one-offed it with somebody, that's different. Um, but yeah, so they'll pay all those things for you. Uh, and then circling back to property management fees that Ricky was talking about, um, if you know, a lot of property management companies are getting savvy to it too, right? They want to make more money and they're thinking ways they can, you know, optimize their own business. And so, yeah, 10% would be reasonable. The CASA is probably one of the bigger ones out there or the biggest manager of Airbnbs for people. They charge 30% of your profit, but they pretty much like guarantee they'll optimize it way better than you ever could. And so wow. I've been intrigued by that. I've had a couple of conversations with them, never pulled the trigger on anything, but if say, if I ever wanted to just pull out and have somebody else manage it, I might, you know, look at who are the players out there, but you could pay up to 30%, you know, but they say they will make up their fee basically inside of your bookings and everything like that. Cause they wow. book it with their own technology and their own systems on like, say a thousand platforms or something crazy, right. like realist, like, you know, MLS syndication. So right. it's just a, it's such a spectrum across the board. And that's, it's kind of like that rising tide lifts all boats, you know, and yeah. this is just a rising market. And a lot of people are saying, Oh gosh, places are so topped out with Airbnbs, but I really don't think they are. I think that it's a very cultural shift, you know, for people like, do you want to go stay in a hotel room with your family? That kind of sucks. When you're traveling with your family, you need yeah. a house, you know, yeah. and that's, the drive here when you're by yourself like when you know shelly and i go to austin texas we just got a hotel room we're good with that you know we don't yeah. need a full house you know all right well yeah. i want to move so. on because we're kind of hitting on that 45 minute mark and but i want to yeah. talk about one more thing i think it's important i don't think we're going to be able to get to taxes which is probably a good thing because you should <laughs> definitely talk to a cpa about all yeah. the different things that can go into this because taxes are a big factor in your bottom line net but if i'm gonna bob Let's say I'm the listener and I have $100,000 and I want to go buy the university bungalow house. What should I expect for my return year one, two, three, four, yeah. five? Like, how should I, like, how do I know if I'm making a good decision or I'm making a not yeah. good decision about buying a short term rental with my yeah, 100000 really, Yeah. So obviously, you know, you're deciding how you're going to do it. Let's just take the scenario. You go buy it. You say, I'm going to call this my primary residence, move into it, get it, get it set up, right? Just to get it set up. And then you're going to, so you can put 5% down and you use your money, you know, to fix it all up. So and the then best way, the number one is on the financing side. I want to buy it as a personal residence and then try to yeah. migrate away from that because I'll get the best yeah. financing terms. Yeah, exactly. Control the property, right? I mean, that's step number one. So you get that and you get it done. You, you optimize it year one. I mean, you're, you're, that's, you got to go cheaper on the price because you're trying to get, bookings, you're trying to get reviews, right? So, cause people really are into reviews on those things. So you really want to be careful about that. So you might want to book it out at a cheaper price. And I actually think my, uh, the university bungalow started out at like 175 a night 
you know, I think it started out as that, but it also didn't even have siding on the outside. It just had house wrap and people were still booking it. I was like, these people are crazy. Uh, and they got there, they're like, oh my God, this looks really weird on the outside. Then they get inside, they're like, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. And then we fixed up the outside as, as we kind of had more money and stuff as we kind of grew. So, so on that year number say, one, are, am I, should I take a loss? Should I predict a loss? Should I break a, predict a break um, even? Should I predict like what? I bet you could probably, I mean, if you got, say you go in your, you buy a, a clean property that you can just go and you say you're going to optimize it. You go put it in. You don't got to do major reconstruction or anything like that. Looks clean and great. You definitely are going to profit in year one, you know, but you're building, right? So you're building in every, as those things go up, you're going to, you're going to go and you're going to start increasing your price in year two. And then you're going to increase it in year three. And now like where I'm at year four, I'm getting, you know, 400 bucks a night. So starting out at 100, you know, 175 a night, increasing to, you know, over 400, we've got, you know, a ton of reviews on that thing. And they're all like, I think it's like 4.9 out of five stars or something. So like Ricky, that, so. like you're the math guru over here. I mean, yeah. break it down. So if I got a hundred thousand dollars and I'm going to make Bob's basically like, you're going to make a profit. Like if you're not doing like, Thank it's not will. a construction, but it's basically an asset you can come into, you can furnish it and you can rent it and it's consistent. Like, should I expect a 5% return and then the next year, 6% return. And then the next year, 10, like, give me some numbers. Go, on go back what to I the spreadsheet. Expect. Go back to the spreadsheet and then diminish the uh, your occupancy occupancy down to like thirty percent or something like that. And let's, yeah, let's and shoot it by the numbers, yeah. so we can just kind of yeah. see. That yeah. would be. So let's say year one you're getting thirty percent. Yeah, here's roughly, and then let's say you're only getting I don't know. Let's say two hundred bucks a night. Yeah. Thirty um, percent seems pretty pretty small. That would be how many nights would that be? Three sixty-five. What's it? One hundred and twenty. In the in yeah, the year, ten nights. It's See, I told bucks. you he's the math guru. Yeah. He just did that in yeah. his head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over here like with my phone. That was like, faster hey, oh, than the calculator. <laughs> Bob couldn't even get the calculator out. <laughs> it, my face couldn't open it. So yeah, I lose money at thirty percent, right? So at two hundred bucks a night, and if I only booked it thirty percent of the time, I'd lose money. Yeah. Um, that's why, I mean, I think your starting goal would probably be, you know, 50 to 60%, but I think that most Airbnbs can hit that so easily, even at a low cost per night, but that's, you got to know your number where you're going to break over at. Right. Yeah. So, you know, back then 175 a night wasn't a big deal, you know, um, and it was booking all the time and actually it booked so much that it was probably more like 175 to 200, two and a quarter, you know, it was probably booked at, you know, 80% and it was like so much that I was like, didn't like it, you know? Yeah. Cause it was too cheap. That's what caused me to think, let's just slowly stagger up our prices and see where people start trickling off. So I want to add something here, Tim. So two things that, that people should be thinking about, right. Is comparing this as an Airbnb short-term rental versus a long-term rental, right. Some different assumptions go in, but uh, conceptually there's some very you know similar things to it. Um, and looking at it from those standpoints and saying, okay, which one makes more sense for me? Um, the second, uh, Robert actually indirectly brought up is the break even point, which is something I can add into this is at what, you know, percent occupancy and, um, you know, cost per night, cost per night yeah. is going to make it where it breaks even. So looking at this scenario, 44% at $200 a night gets you a current cash flow of, of $20 a month, right? So there's your break even. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you're working for the people no, staying there at that point. Money, right? This is a long-term, even though it's a short-term investment or a short-term rental, it's still a long-term investment, right? We're talking mm -hmm. 5, 10, 15 years. A, a long-term 
uh, investment horizon is 10 years. That's, you know, one, two years doesn't matter in the scheme of things. I'm okay with breaking even. I don't want to lose a ton of money, but I'll break even in year one because I know in year two, three, four, I'm going to start moving up to the 70, 80% range. And at that, you know, I'm talking, you know, at 80%, I'm now getting $35,000 a year. How many of those do I need before I retire? You know what I mean? Or at least I can scale back. But, you know, so you have to, one, look at the long term, two, look at your break even, three, look at it comparing the short term rental versus the long term rental. Um, and you also, I think a lot of people don't think about is, um, you know, how much risk are you willing to take on with some of these projects, right? If you really want to take on risk, well, you might flip properties, right? That's a risky endeavor. If you don't want to take on risk, then maybe you're just putting 25% down to have a rental and have that $400 a month cash flow, and you want to do that 10 times over the next 20 years. You know, so yeah. those are things you got to be asking yourself. Right. Yeah, this spreadsheet point, is, just, is awesome, Ricky. It's it's really awesome, and I think for everybody out there, if you want to get um, uh, some type of analysis or how Ricky breaks this down, hit us up, uh, and we mm -hmm. will put uh, a way to get a piece of this. Um, whether it's just you know just a breakdown or if it's actually the spreadsheet, but hit sure. us up um, in the comments. And we will get you something so that you can see how Ricky kind of broke this down because it just starts with the math. I mean, at the end of the day, right. the, any investment, any true value driven investment starts with the math. And then uh, you just go from there. And then, like Bob said, it's all trial and error. I mean, especially in short term rental. I mean, you can you can try to overthink this seven ways to Sunday. But you really just have to jump in and you have to give it a shot. And that's why the best way to do it is on your own personal residence and just kindly get kindly just gradually get more comfortable with it and as you get more comfortable with it then you can go buy a second property and turn it into a vacation rental but ricky man this spreadsheet it's just ridiculous to see this thing like i don't think i could ever create a spreadsheet like this so i i love having <laughs> you on man because bob and i are we're, we're creative thinkers you are definitely an analytical thinker and i think that that that's makes you super valuable as as a partner yeah. on the value-driven investor team because well, you got to think two different ways. Yeah, that's yeah. why Robert and I are a great, a great team. You know, it's One, like, two, punch. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, and we have some crossover there, right? It's like a Venn diagram. You know, uh, we have a little bit of both, but, you know, I'm more analytical. He's more high-level creative. And so it works for us as a team and a duo, um, you know. But it looks, you know, that spreadsheet, I know it, it, it's it's it looks complex, but it's really not. Um, it just takes a little bit of, of playing around with it. Um, I got to make some adjustments to it to make it automated so that people have a spot where they can plug their numbers into. So I'll clean it up for people so that it's a little more user friendly if they want it. Um, I don't as much because obviously I built it. So I know, you know, what I want to do with exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. it for Robert. Yeah, you can lock out, lock out fields and stuff. Yeah. I've never had a reason to it, but, but if people yeah. want it, I'll totally make it where it's, it's a more user friendly spreadsheet. Cool. That's awesome. I appreciate it, guys. This episode has been fantastic. I hope yeah. you guys enjoy it as much as I did. And uh, the Grand Brothers, thank you very much for being on today. Happy to do it, bro. Thanks for listening to the Value Driven Investor Podcast, where we lead by giving. For more information about our community and what's new, visit valuedriveninvestor.com. The Value Driven Investor Podcast was produced by Digital Legend Media in Minneapolis. Build your legend, digitallegendmedia.com.